The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, if you want to follow along in Genesis chapter 28, and those blue pew Bibles are a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, you want to take one of those with you, feel free to take that with you as our gift to you. Genesis 28, um, as you're turning, there were a lot of different titles that I could have given to this message. Uh, and I went with Stairway to Heaven because I had all of these 80s songs going through my head to tell the story of Jacob. So I'll give you 10, all right, just to entertain you for a second, to tell you the story of Jacob. Here you go. Jacob was telling little lies, sweet little lies. And now it's time for leaving, and I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. Because he's leaving. Don't know when I'll be back again. Leaving. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. And I would walk 500 miles. And I would walk 500 more just to be with you. Because he's looking for a lover who won't blow his cover, but she's so hard to find. My head grew heavy and my sight grew dim. I had to stop for the night. It's the darkest hour of the darkest night. It's a million miles from the morning light. I've got those midnight blues, midnight blues. And yet in the middle of the night, he found the stairway to heaven. Well, enough 80s rock music or 70s. Think about the story of Jacob in comparison to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't really get the attention that he gets, should, should get. Do you know that half of the book of Genesis is about Jacob? He doesn't die till chapter 49. So even the story of Joseph is wrapped up in the life of Jacob. And God doesn't say in Scripture, he says one time that he's the God of Abraham. He always says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he usually says he's the God of Jacob 12 times in the Psalms alone and well over 20 or 30 times. He refers to himself as the God of Jacob. So when we say we're all Jacobs, his name means what? He's the heel grabber, supplanter, usurper, conniver, manipulator, deceiver. Jacob. Listen to the story of Jacob afresh. Jacob left Beersheba, went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or beside him, I think is a better translation, and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, for the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would speak Help us to listen. May we listen and not forget. And pray your word would have its way in us and that we would bear good fruit. We pray for good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think of somebody in the Bible that's far from God and they run really far away, but then they come back to God and they're radically converted What do we call that? It's real simple, a prodigal son story. Yet in the prodigal son story, the prodigal returns home after discovering that the pig's food is really not all that good. It's not good at all. As a matter of fact, my father's hired servants are better fed. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father, I've sinned against heaven and earth and I'm no longer worthy to be called your Son, make me like one of your hired servants. And so we have in that story, he's returning home. Well, in this story, this is much more like the story of Saul on the road to Damascus. Far from God, even though Saul thought he was serving God, but the Lord struck him down and met him. Jacob it does not have God on his mind. He's not thinking about God. He's been conniving and scheming. He has stolen the, the birthright and the blessing. And now he's reaping what he has sown. And he's a fugitive, fleeing for his life. When his brother is drawing comfort, he's counseling himself that the way he's going to deal with the grief of losing this is the counseling he's giving to himself is that he's going to kill his brother. And when Rebecca hears that that's the kind of counseling he's giving himself, she realizes this is really serious. And she goes to her husband, and she was the one that that the, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, you know. Rebecca is really the schemer. You remember, she's the one who's hatched the whole scheme to begin with to get the blessing. And now she's got to come up with another scheme to get him out of the house. And so she says, I can't stand the woman that Esau's married. You've got to do something. You know, Jacob, or uh, Isaac, you've got to do something. And so Isaac sends him off and says, go to your your uncle. And that's going to be a 500-mile trek. And 50 miles into this trek, he's got to stop for the night. And so... He lays down. And so what you're starting to see in the book of Genesis as we've been trying to go through this is that Genesis paints the warts and all. 
Any of you maybe have heard the story of Oliver Cromwell when he, they were going to do a painting of him, and he said, paint the warts and all. He didn't want the airbrush version. Give, me, give the real picture of me. And Genesis does that. As you go through the book of Genesis, it's a hot mess of family dynamics. And it's a hot mess of dysfunctional families. It begins with Adam and Eve. And they turn against God and they blame shifting. Then we get to Cain and Abel. That didn't go very well. And we've got Noah getting drunk and one of his children getting cursed because he goes in and sees his nakedness and doesn't do anything to cover him. We've got Abraham lying about his wife, not just once, but twice. And then Isaac, he, he follows his father. He lies about his wife. We've got Lot gets drunk by his daughters and they get pregnant by him. The story of Tamar dressing up as a prostitute to continue her family line with Judah. And Joseph's brothers are going to sit on a lie for 20 years from their father. Their favorite son, who's, they're going to say has been dead for 20 years and not even tell their dad. Well, the context, let's just remind you again of what is so amazing about this text before us, is the context. The context is that Isaac loves Esau. And Rebecca loves Jacob. We've got a family problem. Isaac is set on blessing Esau, and Rebecca hatches an incredible deceptive plot on the fly to deceive her husband and convinces her homely son, mama's boy, to put on the young goat's clothing, because he was certainly acting like a goat, and put the, put the furry stuff on and, and be real rugged like a man, like your brother Esau. And she puts it on his neck and hands. And she makes the meal and the costume, and Jacob was apprehensive about this plot, and he's worried he might get caught, and I might get a curse instead of a blessing. But Mama says, don't sweat it. Let the curse be on me. Just do what I'm telling you. Obey your mother. And Jacob had already stolen the birthright, acted like the devil, convinced his brother, oh, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. You give me the birthright, I'll give you some soup. His brother's ravished in his hunger, and he hears the wooing of his brother, and they each get what they want. And Esau thinks, well, having the Messiah from my birth line isn't all that important. Give me some soup. And Jacob was glad to give it to him. Now, God had already promised Rebekah, promised him that the older will serve the younger. This was all going to come to Jacob as a gift by grace. It was a promise. It was unconditional. Yet Jacob thinks a lot like we do. He's a picture of us. He's a smeagol. He has to grasp it. He's got to get it. All of his life, he's a grasper. I have to get on top. I have to scheme. I got to make it happen. I got to work, connive, you serve, beg, borrow, steal. I got to make a name for myself. It's all up to me. And Jacob personifies what living by the flesh looks like instead of living by the spirit. He personifies what living by sight looks like instead of living by faith. He personifies what living by performance looks like rather than living by God's promises and what living for self looks like rather than living for God. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Because Jacob is the picture of us climbing up to God which God rebuked at the Tower of Babel. 
I hope you see Genesis 28 is the exact opposite of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was man saying, come, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's climb up. Let's get to God. Let's, ma let's make this massive ziggurat and we'll get to God on our own efforts and we'll do it. And God comes in a dream and you have this stairway or ladder. I think it's more accurate to say a stairway with angels ascending and descending on it. That God comes down as we're going to see. It's just the opposite of performance. Jacob practically lives, though, as though he's God, that he has to be the providential mover and shaker. And he believed, like Sarah did, deep down in her heart, that although God had made a promise of a child, that God needs a little help. God needs a little help sometime to get out of a pinch. And so she hatches a plan to help God out of a pinch by saying, here's my servant Hagar, Abraham, I think this is the way that promise is going to be fulfilled. Go into my servant Hagar. And what a mess that created. And Rebecca and Jacob are now doing the same thing. They're trying to help God out a little bit. God made a promise the older will serve the younger, but they got to help him out. God needs help to get out of a pinch. I'm being facetious. Nothing's impossible with God. But we think sometimes he needs a little help, so we have to be creative. And for Jacob, Jacob is now basically doing trick-or-treat, smell my feet, give you something good to eat. And the Halloween costume actually worked on his dad. And so now we have Rebecca giving another command of obey your mother. And this time it's arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay there for a while until your brother's wrath, his fury turns away. And little did she know, she will never lay eyes on him again. That was the last time she ever saw her son. Her plan worked, but it hurt her terribly, I'm sure. Rebecca isn't really trying to get him a husband. That isn't even part of the reasoning. Her deceptive and ruse to pitch this to Isaac is to let Jacob go to, go to, to Laban so that she can protect him from the, from the wrath of Esau. And so Jacob is this mama's boy, and there's no mama now. He's not a good hunter, not a good provider. He's lonely, empty, empty, soul-searching, and this is probably the first time he's ever left home. And he's on this 500-mile journey away from all the comforts of family. And you can imagine, this is like a reboot of his life. He's scared, he's wondering what is he going to do, and he's alone at night, and there's no Holiday Inn in sight. And so what does he deserve? We might say, you made your bed and now you deserve to lie in it. What's his track record, his body of work, his resume at this point in life? It's not looking real promising, is it? What does he deserve? And what does he get? We're very much told that Jacob is between a rock and a hard place, and all he has is a pillow is a stone. And I used to remember reading that as a kid in Sunday school, and I used to think, that can't be very comfortable, but the Bible's trying to paint a nice rosy picture. Everything's always nice in the Bible, and he had a stone for a pillow, you know? And now you read it and you realize the writer is trying to tell us he ain't got nothing. It is such a desperate time for him that the best thing he can find to lay on for the night is a stone that is not very comfortable. 
He deserved coal in his stocking, right? I mean, if he was, if he was doing the Santa thing, because he, he certainly, if it came down to being naughty or nice, we knew which one Jacob was in. He had been naughty. Yet twice in Jacob's life where he's alone at night, both, time, both times Jacob discovers he's not alone. And these two big events in Jacob's life occur in the middle of the night and they form this literary bookmark for us. And those of you that love literature, look at Genesis 28:11. Look what it says. It says, he came to a certain place, stayed there that night because the sun had set. And mark that as a bookmark. And then if you look over in your Bible, a couple chapters to Genesis 32, 31. And it says, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. The writer is trying to give us that it was a hard night and it's the sunset and now the sun's risen and these four chapters of his life is all described to us or painted as this picture of a night, a struggle. And yet God's gonna meet him in the middle of the night both times. Often when it's the hardest and the darkest is where God shows up and he shows up in Jacob's life when Jacob is far from God and he's far from home and he's running away from all of his problems. He's deceived his dad. He has betrayed his brother and he's hated by his brother and his dad is disappointed and his mom is trying to protect him and out he goes. And God's gonna meet him in an amazing way. And you're going to see, what you see in this story is a transformation. Jacob is, he's still a piece of work, just like we all are, but the trajectory of his life is going to completely change because he meets God. Have you met God? Look at this dream. So Jacob is into this journey and he, has, he goes to sleep and in the middle of the night, God speaks to him. And has this, he has this vivid dream of a flight of stairs reaching to heaven with angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder or stairs. And he, he first sees the angels of God, but then he sees the God of the angels. And God speaks to him. And God makes these incredible promises. Six times, God is the object. And six times, Jacob is the subject. He is the recipient of sheer naked grace. There is not one rebuke, which is amazing, because he hasn't done anything of repenting, hasn't done anything of faith, hasn't shown one iota towards God, and God just sheer blessing. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, and you think he would have said, the one you just deceived, but he doesn't say that but it still would have stung as a rebuke. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. No conditions, no conditional clauses, just two of the same promises now made for the fifth time in Genesis. And the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and then now they're to Jacob. And the promises are land and offspring. 
And the promise is going to be bigger here. Throughout the whole earth, this is beyond the land of Canaan. This is to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and all your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this little word offspring, verse 14, is singular in both the Hebrew and in the Greek Septuagint. Significant. You see, it's fulfillment of this promise that in you and your offspring, both collectively through the various offspring of Jacob, but then personally through one individual, singular. Jacob's children will ultimately lead to a child, and from this child is one who's going to come, who's going to bless all the families of the earth. You'll recall when the angel Gabriel appeared to the young virgin named Mary in Luke chapter 1. Do you remember what Gabriel said? He said, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Ding, 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 ding. And of his kingdom there'll be no end. Genesis 28, 14 is going to be fulfilled in Luke 1, verse 33. When Abraham and Isaac receive these promises, they're already married. For Jacob, there isn't even a lady in the picture yet. He hadn't even begun to walk his 500 miles and 500 more. And yet, God is already promising that offspring, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to give you this land. God is telling Jacob his future, and he's blessing him, and there's prosperity and abundance. When all of Jacob's past is deceit and chicanery and train wreck and division, and you can't help but think to yourself, how is Jacob going to bless the world and all the families of the earth when he isn't even currently a blessing to his own family? Because God is more into his grace and his love and his mercy and writing a new story than he is rubbing your nose in the past story. God is the subject, Jacob is the object, and it's sheer naked grace. This is a more profound passage in many ways than Luke's prodigal son story. Yahweh is beside him and says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wouldn't you want to know a God like that? Theologically speaking, Jacob is a picture of total depravity in and of himself. He's contributing nothing that merits or rewards or deserves these blessings from God. Theologically speaking, this is a picture of election and the sheer grace of God. Do you see what you are reading? But there's more. This is a picture of irresistible grace. It's going to happen. You're not going to be able to screw this up. God will keep his promise and he will keep you. This is a picture of perseverance of the saints. Do you see what you were looking at? Have you seen this to be true in your own life? That it's all God. The only thing you need is need. And it's a rare gift. Have you ever recognized your need and realized that it's been God who's been working all along? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one of his sermons, 
famous preacher in London. In 1970, he says, you're not a Christian until God has made you speechless. You ever been speechless before God? No excuses, no more rationalizations, just marveling and astounded by his grace and his love like Jacob, who awoke and said, how awesome is this place? God is here. And I didn't even know it. I was blind to this utter reality that God was right there all along. Have you come to that realization in your own life? You see, what does this mean for us? Isn't it interesting that the Bible refers to, you know, God's going to change Jacob's name from heel grabber. He's been a grasper all his life. And when he awakes and this change begins to come over him, he, he ceases to be a grasper, and now all of a sudden he's a giver. And he makes a vow. All that you gave me, all that you give me. He recognized everything's from God, and now I'm a tither. I will give to God. You know, how we look at our possessions and our money is a direct reflection of whether we've ever been speechless or not. Because if you've been speechless and overwhelmed and you realize he's sovereign, he's over everything, he's providing, he's taking care, he's God, well, everything's from him. And Jacob makes this vow because he's, he's impressed with God. Have you been impressed with God? It's interesting how Jacob, his name will change from grasper to Israel, one who strives with God, because in the second story, which we won't have time to get into, when he wrestles with God all night long, that's Jesus showing up there again. We didn't get a chance to look at that one yet. But from then on, the Bible's gonna refer back to and constantly refer to the people of Israel as either the people of Jacob we're the people of Israel, and God is the God of Jacob. And he says to us, fear not. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Yes, we are worms. Francis Schaeffer was witnessing to his dad. His dad was on his deathbed, and his dad hadn't lived a very good life. And Schaefer began to tell him the gospel, the good news. And Schaefer's dad looked at him and said, how can a worm receive it? And Schaefer looked at him and said, how can a worm refuse it? And his dad became a believer. We may be in and of ourselves Worm Jacobs. We're just like Jacob. God is the God of Jacob. He identifies. He loves Jacob. That's more amazing than he hated Esau. But to think that he loved Jacob, absolutely astounding. And so this dream radically changes Jacob's life. He wakes in the morning, he says, God's in this place. And he's afraid. 
He's afraid. That's the beginning of godliness. The beginning of godliness is fear. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and by grace, fears, my fears relieved, as John Newton talks about in Amazing Grace. It begins with fear. Do you fear God? The un, the, in and of ourselves, we have no fear of God, meaning we, we think we're going to get away with it, or we don't really think what God, care what God thinks. We do things with motivation that aren't God at the center of the motivation. It's man and what other people are going to think. And we're more worried about being embarrassed than sinning against God. Jacob all of a sudden has a God awakening, and he's afraid. And this is how it always happens. Peter was afraid in the boat when the nets were breaking, and he saw that God was the one who worked this miracle. And he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And when Jesus calmed the storm in front of the disciples and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it says they feared a great fear. They were much more afraid than when they thought they were going to drown in the storm than when the storm was calmed because they realized God was in their boat and that the creator was much greater than the creation and they were more afraid of him than the creation and the storm. Do you fear him like that? John fell on his face as though dead when he saw Jesus in his glory. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, he was afraid. I'm a sinful man. Ezekiel fell on his face before God. They were speechless. Have you ever worshipped him for who he is? Have you been quiet before him? And so Jacob's response is to take that very stone now and set it up as a pillar for worship. I I need to worship him. He makes a vow, and the vow is to tithe, that he's going to give to God a full tenth back to you. His life has just been radically rearranged. He's still going in the same direction, going to Laban's house, and he's still going to have some scheming that's got to work himself, work its way out of him. And he's going to awake one morning and say, behold, it was Leah. And he's going to meet his match with a schemer who's just as schemeful as he is in Laban. And those two are going to have scheming matches for several chapters in Genesis. And Jacob's going to try and get, get it over with him with the, with the speckled flock and doing his little tricks that he does that I can never really understand. Jacob's still a work in process. But God's at work in him now. Because he has discovered that God is in this place. And maybe you're here this morning, and for the first time, you are saying to yourself, God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. I didn't come here this morning to meet with God. I came here because my family came, or they wanted me to come, and you're far from God. You didn't want anything to do with this. I want you to hear the gospel this morning. Where is this passage ultimately fulfilled? There's this dream about the angels of God ascending and descending, and Jesus comes along in the first chapter of John, and he sees Nathanael, and he says to him, Behold an Israelite in whom there's no guile or no deceit. I think we've got a slide of this. Yeah. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And we don't know what he was doing under that fig tree. I would love to know if he was praying or if he might have been reflecting on a passage of scripture that he had read in the temple where they were reading Genesis 28. That's my hunch. And that he was praying about it. 
And Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Where's Bethel now? Where's the house of God? Jesus says it's right on him, on the Son of Man. The angels of God are ascending and descending right on him to the Son of Man. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. Heaven has been opened and Jesus has, been, has come down. This is just the opposite of the Tower of Babel where people try to go up to God and make these massive ziggurats and all major religions from the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism to enlightenment, the Ten Commandments of Judaism, the Hail Marys of Catholicism, the knocking on doors of Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses. They're all climbing Jacob's ladder, climbing, climbing, every rung higher and higher. Keep on climbing. We will make it, as the children's song says. Baloney! It's not the Bible! The Bible says the heavens are not open that way. Never have been, never will be. Jesus comes down and he's opened heaven. The number one praise chorus in the 90s was, Lord, I lift your name on high, remember? And then it went, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. That's actually pretty vague and not very precise because all the founders of major religions come to show the way whether they're Brigham Young, Muhammad, or the Dalai Lama, but they never claim to be the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the stairway to heaven. The righteousness based on faith says in Romans, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is just the opposite. It's sheer naked grace. You don't come with anything. You don't come with your performance. You don't come with your climbing ladders. You don't come with your resume. You put a match to all that stuff. You say it's all rubbish and you throw it all away. Jacob wasn't doing anything and God came and saved him. And that's how he saves us. Now, I'm not saying go run away from God so that he'll find you. God brought you here for a reason this morning. Do you know him? And do you love him? And have you ever been speechless before him? Let's pray. Lord, you are good beyond measure. And to think that Jesus came down to Mary's womb, became an infant, lived the perfect life for us, and suffered at the hands of sinful men, and took the curse of the law to pay for all my sins. How can it be? Lord, may Christmas be special for each one here. May we know the gift of gifts that will be so much greater than all the hurts and the pain and the disappointments of this life. May we know that you are God 
and that this story is far from over. Help us to live our lives for you in grateful thankfulness. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.